Thanks for joining us today at Launch Point Church in Lebanon, Tennessee. We believe the Bible is the written word of God without error and useful for every part of our lives. We believe that through learning and teaching of the word, others might come to know God, find freedom, discover their purpose, and make a difference. Thanks again and enjoy today's message from Pastor Jim Kubik. So I'm going to start a series today called Wake Up, O Sleeper. And I'm going to be very pointed for the next five weeks. More pointed than I normally am, if that's a possible thing. Because I think the message that we, the church, needs is desperately needed. Sadly, the church, I was at a conference a couple months ago, and it happened to be a conference regarding the church's position, the scriptural position on abortion, and the guy that he was talk that was talking at the time made this statement. He said every abortion clinic should have a sign outside the front of it that reads open by permission of the local church. Boy, that's that should get you. And as I've pondered on that over the last couple months, I came to realize through prayer and just just really reflection that not just abortion clinics, but every, every liquor store, every strip club, every place that stands contrary to the Word of God should hold and have this same sign in front of it. Because the church has abdicated its responsibility to be the voice for our community. There was some point in our past history that the church determined what the community would tolerate. If the church said that's not happening here in our community, it didn't happen. But for whatever reason, whether it be because we no longer are convicted by the Spirit, because we're comfortable in our sin, because we don't understand the weight and the magnitude of our responsibility, for whatever reason, we determined through pressure of society to remove ourselves from society, become insulated inside the walls of our church, and shut our mouth to the truths that Jesus Christ died so that we'd have the ability to declare to a lost and dying world. That's a mouthful of stuff. And it's time that we woke up. I'm going to read you a story out of Jonah. Jonah 1, 1 through 5, many of you are familiar with the story of Jonah, but let me read this to you. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. This is the exact opposite of the direction geographically that God told him to go. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid for the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, small g. And they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. 
But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, lain down, and fallen sound asleep. This is the condition of the church today. The world has erupted into storm and chaos. We have been given a message of deliverance. And instead of maintaining our responsibility to that message of deliverance, we've decided to run from it. In running from it, we, we went down to the belly of the ship and fell asleep. And now because everything around us is upside down, everyone around us has a question in their mouth and none of them have the answer because the people that God ordained to have the answer have determined to be quiet and fall asleep. This is unacceptable. And it's time, as the title of the series states, that we wake up, that we get out of the belly of this ship call out to our God while declaring the truth to the people in and around us what the truth says. And that's what I plan on doing in the next five weeks, including this one. I'm going to start today with confronting culture, specifically how to confront culture um, based on the model given to us by Paul on Mars Hill, Areopagus, in Acts chapter 17. I'll get to that in just a second. After that, though, having determined how to, we're going to explain what to, what we need to be saying and how to say it. So I ask you, I implore you, take notes. Because I want to equip you to have the conversations the church never should have stopped having in the first place. Questions to answers, or answers to questions like, what really defines marriage? The idea that sex does not equal love. The idea that gender matters. That masculinity isn't toxic. There's subjects that the world is dying to have the answer to that we, through the Word and the Spirit of God, have the answer to, but we've not given it to them. And so I want you to write notes because we should have a prepared answer for those asking those questions. Amen? Amen. All right. So, it's time for us to wake up. It's time for us to stay true to the Word. It's time for us to declare the truth. Because according to John 8.32, the truth will set you free. Now, what I have come to understand not just in my Christian walk, but in my, just my life, is that truth may set you free, but it's going to make you mad first. So I want you to prepare your spirit to be mad if I say something contradictory to your opinion. Provided it's not in contradiction with the Word of God. If it's in contradiction to your opinion, but not in contradiction to the Word, I need you to change your opinion. Because your opinion doesn't matter in regard to the truth of the Word. Because I want us to be free. More specifically, God desires us to be free, and He desires to use us that other people might be free too, which isn't possible if our mouth is closed. Man, that's good. 
That's good. Thank you. Appreciate that. We've decided for whatever reason in the last few generations to move church from a religious institution to a business one. We have moved pastors to CEOs. As congregants, we've determined, which means that we've just determined to run the church like a business. It's not a business. It's a spiritual institution. Congregants act like employees. They say, well, I'm not getting the benefit that I think I deserve from that church. And because I'm not getting the benefit I think I should be getting from that church, I'm going to go to a different church. I'm going to see if this one pays better. God didn't call you to do that. God told you to work where you are, to grow where you were planted, and to produce fruit where you're planted. Amen? All right. I haven't got excited yet, but I'm about to. And because we haven't been willing to open our mouth, and because we treat the church like a business, we've moved programs into places where prayer should exist. We've moved comfort into the places where conviction should exist. We've moved happiness into positions where holiness should exist. And it's time to remove those things and put holiness, conviction, and prayer back into our churches. Woo! That's good. We've moved ourselves from the public stage. And it's been sadly easy to do. Because the pressures are hard. We moved from a place where there was a time in America where it didn't matter what sign was outside your door. If you called yourself a Christian, you were a Christian. And you stood shoulder to shoulder with other Christians declaring the truth. Now, we don't do that. We stand toe to toe and fight about things that aren't important. The reason we can't get anything accomplished in this culture is because instead of fighting the fight we've been called to fight, we're fighting peacetime fights. Well, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? Second or third tier issues that have nothing to do with salvation, we'd rather spend our time and energies on those, using our voice to make our own position and platform important instead of the message of Jesus Christ. And it's time to stop. It's time for the culture to hear the voice of the church. Amen? So today I want to do that. I want to talk about what that looks like. And I want to talk about what confronting culture looks like from Acts chapter 17. I'm going to start in verse 16. I'm going to teach through... 34, although I'm not going to read all of that at the same time. I'm going to make four points, all of them relatively short, um, surprisingly. Uh, here's the first one in confronting culture. And taking back what we never should have given away in the first place. Confronting culture begins with provocation. Write it down. I'm waiting for y'all to write it down. Verse 16 reads like this. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, that's Timothy and Silas, 
his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. In Athens, Athens was like the hub of idol worship, of deity worship. They, it was often said, and it was quoted as being said then, that it was easier to find a deity than a man in Athens. There were so many gods, so many things that wanted to be gods, that it, there was more of those than there were men. And as Paul looked around, Paul being the convictional person that he was, all of us being the convictional people that we should be, we should look around our society, much like Paul did, and say, that is trying to be a God in my life. That is a God in the life of others. This shouldn't exist. This shouldn't be taking place. And allow our spirit to be provoked in us. We should desire a holy discontent with what's happening around us. Did you know until I become wholly discontented with the things that are happening around me, I'm not going to do anything about the things happening around me. That's true. Otherwise, I just sit and watch. But it's time in this city, in this county, in this state, that we begin to allow the Holy Spirit to provoke our spirit to make proclamation of the truth, to confront the culture. Let me tell you why it's important. I'll tell you it's important because in this city, little bitty city of Lebanon, a place I grew up, man, it was so conservative 15 years ago. Today, there's an open-air bar where you can drink beer on the sidewalk on the square. I can remember when Lebanon wouldn't sell liquor by the drink inside the deepest recesses of a restaurant. But now you can go hang out on the square and drink beer in public. And as much as I'd love to say, man, that's the worst of it, that's not the worst of it. The worst of it is that our own chamber of commerce, and you're all, man, you're getting awful. Name, Collie. Yes. Because it's time you can't confront something you're not willing to call out. Our very own Chamber of Commerce celebrated with a ribbon cutting a new business in Lebanon called the Mystical Apothecary. Do you know what the Mystical Apothecary is? If you go in there, it looks nice. It's a cutesy little kind of boutique place. But they sell crystals and crystal balls and witchcraft items and potions and, and all of these kinds of things. And they're readily available. And our city is celebrating this. Witchcraft. It's time that the church become provoked to speak the truth. Y'all, man, I'm, I would like to go over there, but they're, they're going to get mad at me. Let them get mad. Who are you would rather be mad at you? Them or God? We have to be willing to allow ourselves to be provoked because in our provocation, we take action. But we have to according to point two, take our provocation into the public spaces. In verses 17 through 21, it says this. So he was reasoning, that is Paul, in this, so he was provoked. And so he went out into the city and was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace and every day with those who happened to be present. 
And also, and because of all of that, because he was speaking to Jews, because he was going to the synagogues, because he was going to the marketplace, places where he found God-fearing Gentiles, he went everywhere he could go within the city of Athens. People started paying attention. In verse 18, and some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were, conver philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seemed, others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the area of Pegasus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming. For you are bringing some strange thing to our ears. So we want to know what these things mean. Parentheses. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing more than telling or hearing something new. Point number two, confronting culture has to happen in the public spaces. Why? Why can't I just sit in my office and fuss about what the world looks like? Why can't I sit in my living room and fuss about the world, what the world looks like? Amongst my peers, people that think like me, act like me, and talk like me. Why can't I just talk to them about what I don't like? Because those people, because they're in your circles of influence, I hope, already have the light in them. And we've been called to be the light. Listen to this. Matthew 5, 14 and 15. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. You've been called to be a light. Why do I got to go into public places? Because the world's too dark for you not to be in the public places. I went to Starbucks. It's about two years ago. I mean, I've been to Starbucks since then, but I went to Starbucks two years ago in regard to the story I'm about to tell you. And I had a church member confront me about going to the Starbucks. Well, you shouldn't go to Starbucks. Don't you know there's homosexuals there? Don't you know there's sinners there? Yeah, I do. You know why I go to Starbucks? Buy a Starbucks, sit in there for about two hours, open my Bible, and do my Bible study into Starbucks? Because I'm the light of the world, and I've never seen a place get more light when you take the light out of it. It's okay. I think Jesus was accused of such things. He eats with sinners and prostitutes. Oh, no. You know why? Because they needed the light that he had. I've had several people ask me, how are we justifying being involved in this Halloween on the square? You don't know how we're justifying? We are getting one quarter of the square. We're going to have a prayer booth there. We are praying now in advance of that that God open up opportunities for gospel conversations. We're going to have bounce houses. We're going to love on this community. We're going to give every opportunity and take every opportunity to declare the truth to them and show them that someone loves them outside of the prevalent evil in society. That's how we justify being there because we're the light in an otherwise dark world. And we should be. These things have to happen in the public space. Your public space looks different than my public space, but you're still required to be in one. Hmm. Y'all hear what I'm saying? So first, 
Allow yourself to be provoked. And then move into the public spaces. Why don't we do it? I think we don't do it in the public spaces for the same reason we hear here. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? That means, they're all, what's this fool talking about? We're afraid to say anything because we're afraid somebody's going to talk ugly about us. Let them say what they will because it doesn't matter. Let them ridicule us. Let us sit under persecution. Because at the end of my life, and there will be an end of my life, and it's going to come a lot faster than I think it is. It's better to deal with those that call me babblers and hear well done, good and faithful servant than shy away from those that would tell me such things and be standing at the throne room of God and watching the disappointment on his face as he knows I didn't fulfill the commission he gave me to fulfill, that he placed life in me to progress in the public places through provocation. And it should be easy for us to do. There's evidence that we're not telling, the, we're not telling a lie. We're telling the truth. Our God exists and that existence can be proven and has been proven. It's proven in the resurrection. I'm going to read you a text out of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I love this. First off, how many of y'all believe the Bible's true? Some, some of y'all don't, okay. I'm going to convince you tomorrow, next week when we're talking about relative truth that the Bible is real. Unless you want to say it again. How many of y'all believe the Bible is true? All right, I'm still going to prove it to you next week. We have evidence based on the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8. Reads like this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scripture. So he's saying, listen, the very most significant thing I ever had to tell you was about Jesus, Him suffering and crucified, and raised from the dead. But can I tell you there's proof of that? And here it is. He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain till now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then all the apostles, and last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. You know why I confidently say everything I say to you? Because this word is true. And the resurrection was proven. 500 and about 30 people saw Jesus Christ walking around after he was dead in the ground for three days. I have proof that what I'm telling you is true. And so I'm not scared to say it in a public space. You know what I am scared to tell in a public space? A lie. Because a lie can be found out. I dare you to disprove this. You can't. You know why? Because this is inspired, breathed, by the Spirit of God. And if it's breathed by the Spirit of God and the Spirit of God cannot lie because God cannot lie, then I know every single tittle, every single word in this is absolute truth. 
It's not some hyperbole. It's not some craziness. It is the absolute truth. If God says the sun stood still, guess what? That's historical fact. The sun stood still. So have confidence and proclaim. But proclaim correctly. Number three, confront, confronting culture happens in proclamation. 23 through 31. Paul says this, The God who made the world and all things in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all people life and breath and all things, and He made from one man to every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they may seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he not be far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of our own poets have said, for we were also his children. But being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. This is his theological argument. And you're all, that doesn't make any sense to me. And trust me, until you pray on it and meditate on it, it's not going to make any sense to you. Let me explain it to you. Paul is making an argument about who God is. First, he says this. Or let me, before I get into that, I need to talk about the motivation. I'm sorry. Before you begin to proclaim, make sure you're proclaiming for the right reason. And that's love. I can, I can beat you in the head with the Bible, man. I could yell at you. I can have spittle coming out of my mouth. I can stick my finger in your face. But at the end of the day, if I don't love you, if I don't walk in humility, gentleness, and kindness towards you, it's not going to prove any benefit to you or to the people who hear it. That's true. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. I'm not going to go to that text, but this is what it says essentially. It doesn't matter what you say. If you do it without, if you say it without loving, you're a noise nobody wants to hear doesn't matter what you do or what you know because no matter how articulate you are if you articulate that from a place of condescension condescending other folks and it's not in love they're not going to hear you chapter 3 it doesn't matter what you give even to the sacrificing of your own body if you're not doing it because you love them they're not going to have any of it doesn't matter what you say, doesn't matter what you give, it doesn't matter what you do. The motivation for proclamation has to be love. So 1 Corinthians 16, 14 says, let all that you do be done in love. Amen? Not judgmental, not malicious, not mean, but pointed, convictional. Because it doesn't do any good to yell at them anyway. Do you know we're not called to judge the unbeliever? That's true. Any of y'all ever owned a dog? Nobody in here ever owned a dog. 
<laughs> Maybe saw a dog on TV or something. <laughs> you love that dog, right? Within reason? Would you just walk up that dog and kick that dog for no reason? You know, the dog's being a dog today. I'm going to kick it. When you judge the unbeliever who has not been pulled by the Spirit, drawn by the Spirit, and declared the truth to, you're kicking a dog for being a dog. They are, by their very nature, unbelievers. What are you judging them for? Your only job is to proclaim the truth to them. Here's where Christians get messed up. Our job is to judge each other. You're like, well, you can't judge me. Well, you can't twist Scripture, but you do. Fact of the matter is, I can judge you. I shouldn't judge you without first judging myself. Amen? Some of y'all, man, you just liken people to dogs. They got no life in them. Amen? It's a sad thing. It's why we should be so intentional about reaching them. But it's all for the purpose of love. So back to this argument that Paul's making. Paul makes this argument because the argument needs to be made. The Bible is specific that an argument needs to be made. 1 Peter 3.15, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, which means don't you dare talk about how good Jesus is unless you got Jesus. Because Jesus doesn't like a hypocrite. He had the greatest judgment for those who were hypocritical. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. I have a hope in me. Do you have a hope in you? Yet with gentleness and reverence in love. Be prepared with an answer, but make sure that answer is in gentleness and reverence. That's the crux of this whole series that I'm doing. I want to give you the answer to the questions people are asking you. Or maybe they're not asking the questions, but they need you to give them the answer anyway. And so... Paul makes his argument. But what does his argument look like? This is what his argument looks like in a nutshell. In 24a, he says, God is creator. The God who made the world and all things in it. As creator, because God is creator, he deserves our worship. For no other reason we use the words interchangeably, worship and praise. You know there's a difference between the two? We worship God because God exists. Because He's a creator. We praise God for all that He's given us, including breath in our lungs. But because He's creator and He's created all things, He deserves to be worshipped. That's what Paul is saying. But then in 24b, he says this, since He is Lord of heaven and earth. Which means He's Lord. Not only is He Creator and deserves to be worshipped, He's Lord, and as Lord, deserves to be submitted to. And then He goes on, in 25 and 26, He says, Nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all people life and breath and all things, and He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. What's that saying? God's sovereign. God's in control. You know the blessed thing about God's sovereignty and God's control? We don't like that in America. 
because we, we feel like I, I have the right to be free. You're not going to be free until you accept the sovereignty of God. But God is sovereign. You know why it's good that God is sovereign? Because God is good. If he's in charge of everything and we know that he's good and he can't give anything but good gifts to his children, even if we don't understand how those good gifts works out, then we should be able to trust him. And so because he's sovereign, we can trust him. Paul's making an argument. I'm going to sum it up in just a minute. And then he says in 27 through 29 that they might seek God. If perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, even some of our own poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. And so in these verses, he says, God is knowable. Knowable. And because he's knowable, he should be sought after. Not sought after like you're seeking after these deities, these false gods in your life, but as creator, as Lord, as the great sovereign. So what's the argument Paul's making? He starts by saying, listen, y'all have a thing over here for the unknown God. Can I take a second to explain to you who that is? He said, the unknown God that you think you know is the creator of the universe. And because he's the creator of the universe, you should worship him, not this. Because he's the creator of the universe, he's also Lord. And so you should be submissive to what he wants, not what you want. Because he is creator and Lord, and because he's sovereign, you can trust that his beautiful hand upon your life is for your own good. And because he is all of those things, he has made himself knowable to you. There's no reason for you to say there's an unknown God. Because if you'll grope just a little bit, you'll see that he's greater than all of these other things that you've created by your own hand. Because in knowable, there's relationship. As in seeking the knowable, we are offered relationship in Christ Jesus. And then Paul wraps that up with a gospel presentation. He says this in 30 and 31. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, and we are in times of ignorance, but the time of ignorance is over. Paul's saying, listen, I just told you who God is. This thing that you say is an unknown God, I just, you can't claim to be ignorant anymore. I've just told you the truth. I've just told you and declared the truth to you. You can't be ignorant anymore. God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because you don't have the right to be ignorant because you are no longer ignorant. You've, been, you've had the truth revealed to you. There's only one response to that truth, and that's repentance. That means turn away from who you are, who you think you are, the sin that you're committing. Turn away from that 
and turn towards Jesus Christ, who is the only solution to your problem. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. There will be a day of judgment. Not according to your righteousness, but according to his. You can call yourself good if you want to. You're not good. Your definition of righteousness outside the work of Christ Jesus and your acceptance of it doesn't mean anything. You will be judged according to his righteousness, his standard of right. That's why the Bible says, For God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We love that verse, right? We don't pay attention to 17 and 18. He said, he didn't come to judge the world because the world's already been judged. You're already under judgment. What you need is somebody to remove you from judgment. Only Jesus Christ can do that for you. This is the message that we need to confront culture with. And then he continues, through a man, Jesus, whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. And I read that proof to you earlier. In fact, the Holy Spirit confirms that truth in you even now. He sealed you so that you can have confidence in the hope that you have in you. Amen? So my question is, why don't we confront culture? And here's why. Because confronting culture, this is point four, results in participation. And that participation isn't always what we expect or what we hope for. 32 says, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. Some of them were all, Man, you've lost your mind. You must be crazy. They started persecuting. They started talking mad trash. They started doing everything you'd expect the world to do when faced with the truth when they're mired down in in their lie. Some or but others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. Some just said, I ain't trying to hear that. But there were others that be all, man, I'm not quite convinced yet. Can we talk again? But yet there's others joined him and believed. When we confront culture, We can expect people to sneer at us. We can expect people to have their thirst quenched for a little while. And we can expect those people to accept. Which one of those three they end up being isn't our problem. That's the Holy Spirit's problem. Our problem is to confront them with the truth. That there's a creator that can be. excuse me, there's a creator, there's a Lord, there's a sovereign, and that he can be known. So that they might tear down that unknown God sign from their life. But you know what? We can't declare that if we don't know that ourselves. We can't declare that if we don't declare that first. I've told the gospel to you today. I didn't give it in the normal Romans 3.23, John 3.16, Romans 10.9 that you're used to, but 
but I've told you the truth of the gospel. And I'm asking you, I'm confronting you before I ask you to confront culture. Do you know the Jesus that died and resurrected so that you could have the same hope in you that was in Paul? I'm going to ask if there's anybody in this place that doesn't know or has allowed themselves to fall away. And by fall away, this is what I mean. I'm not stupid. I know people give their life to the Lord and then they fall into sin. And then they start intentionally falling into sin. And then they live in their sin. They make a decision to live in their sin. Those things need to be dealt with too. You go, I gave my life to the Lord when I was seven. You're living in intentional sin. Your time of ignorance is over. It's time for you to repent. If that's you, we don't condemn you. We celebrate you. If that's you, I want to pray for you. Would you stand up? If there's anybody in this place that needs to get their life right, recognizing that there will be a time of judgment according to His righteousness, not ours. If you need to make that right, would you stand? Well, praise God. Then this is the prayer that I'll pray. And the prayer that I hope you continue to pray. That the Spirit provoke us to not be scared to confront culture. As we start... Let me tell you, we start talking about abortion. We start talking about gender identity. We start talking about masculine toxicity and the lie that that is. People aren't going to like it, but they're dying for not knowing the truth of it. And so I'm going I'm to pray that you stand and stand convictionally. Amen.